0: Matthew, I appreciate it very much. Hey, Felix and Lupe Campos got us a new pulpit. Isn't that nice? So you'll have to tell them thank you for putting that together for us. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series entitled Love Is, based on the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over there or your Bible app. So it is uh, about the fifth or sixth book in there. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts uh romans and then i guess the seventh book there would be uh the first letter of paul sending correspondence to the church at corinth so while you're turning there let me just tell you a couple of things uh, we had our small group fair a few weeks ago and some of you weren't here but it's not too late most of our small groups don't start until next sunday nights so we meet on the first and third sunday nights so if you weren't able to hop into a group we've got these little small group cards They're there in the lobby. Just fill them out and drop them in the the contribution box so that we can try to get you into a group. And we have some folks that will call you up, find out if you want to be more geographically located or if you want to be in a group with kind of same stage of life folks. But we want everyone uh, to be known and needed. We want people to connect. So make it a a point to join one of our small groups. And then also, just kind of save the day, our men's retreat. It's October 15th through 17th, and we're going to be talking about raising up the next group of leaders and mentoring. So, guys, sign up for that, young and old. This is going to be a, a great weekend away. In a matter of months after the crucifixion of Jesus, and he ascends back up into heaven... A young Saul of Tarshish mounts a vicious opposition to these new believers, seen as a threat to the Jewish way of life and, and a threat to the law. And so Saul starts going door to door and house to house, rounding up Christians and either killing them or arresting them, putting them on trial. And so a lot of the people flee the city. Now the apostles, most of them stay inside Jerusalem, but kind of go off the grid and and kind of go underground for a while. They weren't seen out in public, but most of the brothers and sisters, these new believers took off And so they went to various parts of of the world and in different parts of the area. And this was kind of by design. I believe that the persecution came to strengthen and galvanize these new believers, but also to help uh, fulfill the Great Commission. And so they weren't leaving Jerusalem on their own. So the Lord's like, okay, well, some persecution is going to send you out. Well, a lot of these brothers and sisters wound up in Damascus. It was the first big metropolitan area across the border once you left Israel. And so Saul, undeterred, says, okay, you're going to go to Damascus? I'm going to extend where I can go. And so he sought permission to extend his jurisdiction into Damascus to bring back these religious rebels to stand trial in Jerusalem. So he heads out, and he's got his entourage ready, and they're heading out on the road. And what happens next was called this great just encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus. And so he has this road to encounter experience that only he kind of participated in. Everyone else saw the bright light, but they couldn't hear what was being spoken to Saul. Of course, it was Jesus Christ saying saul saul why do you persecute me and so lord yeah yeah i'm jesus christ who you're persecuting stop but what jesus did at that point is he redirected saul's zealousness in the right direction and he goes i'm calling you to be a light unto the gentiles and so saul is led he's blind and he's led into the city where he encounters ananias who shares with him the full gospel, and he is baptized and becomes a believer. And so initially he starts out and he's trying to fulfill his commission, but he runs into a lot of opposition. And either he returns back to Tarsus, his hometown, and just kind of lays low for a while, or he goes off in a different area. We simply don't know. But 16 years later, Paul sets his sight on taking the gospel to the Roman territories. And of particular importance was Corinth. Well, why Corinth? Well, it was the capital city of the Achaean province of Greece. Well, what do we know about this city? Well, why was it such a strategic place that Paul wanted to help set up a church there? Well, it, it becomes this crossroad. And it's right there on the coast. And the city is just this melting pot of Greeks and Syrians and Romans and Jews. And they're, they're all there. But in classic times, Corinth was known as kind of the jewel of the coast. It was just beautiful. And it was arrival of Athens, which it was actually multiple times larger than Athens at that time. And we went this summer. You can hop in a car. It's about an hour down the coast. You, You go from Athens and you wind up there in Corinth. So it's not very far. And so the Romans invaded Greece in 146 B.C. And boy, Corinth just got leveled to nothing but rubble. And so it was just kind of devastated. But a 100 years later, Julius Caesar comes in and sees the potential for Corinth and restores it to its glory and just brings it back to where it becomes very prominent place. And so I, I mentioned that it's in a strategic location. Why is that? Well, historian Strabo wrote in 7 BC, Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce, since it is situated on the isthmus and is the master of two harbors, of which one leads straight to Asia and the other leads to Italy. And it makes easy the exchange of merchandise from both countries. Okay, so you've got these two harbors. One of them is Senserea, which is the hometown of Phoebe. Maybe you remember Phoebe from Romans chapter 16. She's the deaconess that Paul mentions, who most likely is the letter carrier and the reader of the book of Romans. So she's from this area. So what's the deal with the two harbors and why was this such an important thing for trade? Well, the idea is you could pull into either harbor from either the east or west, and then you would go out onto this narrow spot that was about six, well, it was about four miles there. And so instead of going around, you could offload your cargo off of your ship from one port, and then it would be taken across, or you could even pick up your whole vessel. And they would take it across the Diakonos, which is this paved roadway that if you go to Corinth, you can walk upon it. The remnants of it are still there. And so you would offload your cargo, and they would put it either on sleds or large carts that were pushed and pulled by slaves. And so you'd drop them off, and they go four miles across this narrow spot there. You could load it onto another boat. And so what this would do would save you. About six days of treacherous sailing around the southern Cape of Greece now why do I say it was treacherous these are the same waters that the Apostle Paul later in in Acts chapter 20 27 they're sailing they got thrown off course and they wind up in Malta because it was this just a real heavy winds that go through there that threw his boat off and so Boy, Corinth becomes this awesome place to come in, avoid the treachery, and save six days, drop your goods off, have it picked up on the other side, and continue on. So all this was happening, and so it was also a huge trade center for land trade as well from the east and from the west but also from the north coming down from the mountains. And so everyone would bring their goods and and stuff into the town. And it wasn't just stuff from outside. Corinth was also known as one of the main producers of bronze. They figured out how to mix the alloys there. And so people came from around the world to Corinth for the bronze goods there. So all of these factors coming together made Corinth, just this awesome place for prosperity. And so you had some folks experience the abundance of riches and were made very wealthy there in Corinth, but not all. So if you think about it, you've got merchants and you've got entrepreneurs and you've got bankers. You get everyone that is facilitating all of these trade and the harbor master and everyone else. But you've also got the blue collar longshoremen, the guys that are, are loading and unloading cargo there in both of these harbors. And then we also know they had numerous slaves there and also some freedmen. Well, what are freedmen? Well, those are former slaves that have purchased their freedom, but they're very poor. And so you've got the haves and the have-nots all living together in this very large city of Corinth. The historian, uh, one of the historians described Corinth in this way. He said, you have the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor. So you can just see how important that this was for Paul to bring the gospel message into a very divided city. Well, when Paul was there in AD 50, you also had a great famine that took place over in Egypt. And so they hadn't stored up enough in the storehouses. And so the food that was sent out became very expensive. And so this is happening while Paul was there. And now he's left. But you can see why when they're having their communion feast and they're all gathering together, the rich folks at the church had plenty of food and are gorging themselves while those that were the have-nots went hungry. And so you're like, how could this take place? Well, if you're a rich person in Corinth, it was an awesome place to live. I mean, it was just incredible because it, it was a place of culture, of literature, of theater and arts. And, and the elites lived in beautiful homes and, and dressed to the nines and remember, they wore, wore costly garments. And they lived these lavish lives. And The people there in Corinth kind of prided themselves. They were known as the beautiful people in the athletic So Corinth was host of the Ithmian games. They were kind of like the Olympics But it was every two years were being held there in Corinth So athletes from around the world came into Corinth Corinth every two years for these games And so it became part of the culture that if you're an elite there in Corinth well, you better look the part You know, the Greeks thought to be unattractive or out of shape was a moral failure. And so the elites, boy, they put a lot of of time into physical appearance. Well, that's kind of the general culture. But you've got to realize there's also a very dark side to the town of Corinth. It was a crazy pagan place. So just think about all the religious options that you had. You had up on one hillside, you had the temple to Aphrodite. On another, you've got the temple to Apollo and then Athena. And you even had temple worship for the emperor and his family. And and that's just the, the, I guess, the, the religious things that were above board. You also had cults that were devoted to Dionysus. And Artemis, and Hera, and Hermes, and Isis, and Neptune, and Zeus. It just goes on and on. And so a lot of, um, well, less than savory things took place when you went to church. Well, in addition, Corinth was extremely sexually permissive and a sexually immoral city. And so you have a lot of promiscuity taking place there in the city before marriage and then also after marriage. And let's just say that we think things are, are kind of coming unraveled sexually here in America. Boy, these are not new things. If you had an appetite for anything in Corinth, boy, there was someone to help satisfy your hunger there. And so polygamy wasn't allowed. But that didn't mean you couldn't have a mistress on the side. Well, that's for the men. The, the women were not allowed to have that. So it was kind of a double standard for the wives. And if having a wife and a mistress was not enough, boy, the temple of Aphrodite alone boasted a thousand temple prostitutes. So that was just part of your routine. You had your wife, you had your mistress, and then you went regularly to these temples where they had plenty of prostitutes. So that's kind of the world of Corinth. Plato coined the term a Corinthian girl to describe prostitutes. So you're, you're thinking, well, you know, it was bad all over. No, this is like really bad if other parts of the Greco-Roman world are describing some of the despicable things taking place in Corinth, that it has to be that much worse. So for Plato to call him that. And it wasn't just sex, it was also substance abuse, abuse was rampant and well, as well. And so when you would have these plays in Greece, they would often depict Corinthians as just being drunkards. And so if you're watching a play and a guy comes stumbling onto stage and doesn't say much, they're like, oh, well, that guy must be from Corinth. So in in Acts chapter 18, we've got Paul Leaving Athens remember he's been up on Mars Hill and he's talking about the different idols up there and the He has his famous speech about saying hey, you've even got a God a, a, a Temple or an altar to the unknown God and I know who that is Well, he leaves Athens. And he travels up the coastline and in Acts chapter 18. He arrives in Corinth Well, what happens when he arrives? he's on his second missionary journey, and when he shows up, he encounters this power couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Well, who were they? Well, they were Jews that had been living in the Roman Empire up in Rome, and then they got kicked out and had to come out. And so they moved all the Jews out of Rome, and so they made their way down. And we'll read about Priscilla and Aquila being in Ephesus and different places. But they encounter and meet Paul here in Corinth, and and they're both tent makers like Paul. And so six days a week, they're out in the marketplace, and they're making tents, and they're also making connections with people. And then on the Sabbath day, they get together, and they all go in and make a case for Jesus being the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies, and trying to share the gospel message there. And so all this was taking place over a long period of time and said he would go in and reason with the Jews and Greeks there. Well, eventually they get to the point where they're like, uh, Paul, we're tired of hearing about this Jesus character. You need to leave. And so Paul's like, fine. But he doesn't leave Corinth. In fact, it says he just picks up his things and he goes right next door. And so he goes to the house of Titus Justice and preached to the Gentiles there. And so Acts chapter 18 and verse 11 says this. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Okay, so imagine you've got the apostle Paul that's come into your town. And he starts telling people about Jesus. And we well, getting a baptism here, three or four here another household, start building a collection of people, and suddenly they're meeting in home churches, and wow, there's another one going. And so he's building up the church there for a year and a half. Well, not only is he converting people, but he's discipling them, and he's sharing with them about what it means to be a Christ follower. So after a year and a half, they kind of got the routine down, they got their theology down, and they're heading in the right direction. So it should be smooth sailing, right? Well, not exactly. Yes, for a while. But then the people are like, okay, so Paul has told us this stuff about Jesus. We've accepted Jesus. But can we kind of keep this Jesus stuff rolling, but also kind of step back into our pagan ways? Can can we revert back and kind of pull in some of the best stuff from our old life? And the best stuff from our new life and kind of combine that into a perfect world. And so that's what they start doing. And so, man, what did they get involved with? Well, they kind of miss those temple prostitutes. So some of the fellas are heading up the hill after church to go to a second church service. There was even a guy that was sleeping with his stepmom. You're like, are you kidding me? No, he's right there in the text. The people were overindulging on food and getting drunk during communion. Can you, y'all, are just gonna be amazed when we start reading about what what the worship service there in Corinth was like? But they had this big meal, and the guys showing up early, and they're three or four drinks in before the service gets going, and they're passing out during communion. And Paul's like, "You got to be kidding! You have members there quarreling and suing one another." So you've got Christ followers that are supposed to be projecting unity and love for one another. Well, they can't even get along to the point where they're taking their disputes and going to courts. You're like, you're taking them to courts? Y'all can't figure it out amongst yourself? No, I have the right to. No, you do not. You're like, oh, wow. Do you realize how that's compromising the gospel message for two believers to not be able to figure it out amongst themselves and to leave? And to go take it to the courts to have a pagan arbiter. And so people are spreading false teaching. Some people are saying, you know what? I don't think that resurrection thing ever happened. That was just Paul on just kind of a crazy day. And they're like, Paul's like, yeah, the resurrection took place. Folks are going crazy with spiritual gifts, giving all kinds of things, but they're not just exercising them. They're exercising in a way that kind of brings glory to themselves. They have kind of a hierarchy as to, hey, my gift's better than your gift and putting others down. And the Holy Spirit's going, why did I give this gift to this person if they're going to act this way? And so things are kind of coming unraveled in this church. But the main problem that you see all throughout this letter It's just selfishness. John Calvin said this of Corinth. He said it was a church turned in on itself to the neglect of others. Well, how could a church go off the rails so quickly and profoundly? My guess is it was a misinterpretation of Paul's letter to the Galatians. So I spent some time traveling around with an evangelist. And if evangelists evangelist got a, a good message, everywhere he went, he would share that same message. And so Galatians is believed to be the first letter that Paul has written about four years before he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. And so in Galatians, that gets sent from, from church to church, Paul starts painting a new picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. He talks about freedom in Christ. And he talks about having all of these different benefits. And here's what he says in Galatians 5 and verse 1. It's for your freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5 and verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Boy, that's kind of open-ended. But folks are like, hey, I can go do this, and I can go do that, and and I'm going to take this celebrity, and we have freedom in Christ. And and just as long as we've got Jesus, we can express ourselves any way that we want to and still be God-honoring. The only thing is, what they're doing is coming at the expense of others. And so finally, one of the house churches meeting at Chloe's house, Chloe says, all right, we've got to get some help here. You better call Saul slash Paul and let him know what's going on and get him in here because he needs to weigh in because his church is heading in the wrong direction. So Paul writes this letter from Ephesus to try to correct some of the craziness going on at Corinth. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 through 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes? He's the synagogue ruler that was beat up in Acts chapter 18. To the church of God in Corinth. Listen to how he describes the people. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you hear about all these crazy things happening at this church in Corinth, and you expect just Paul to come out with guns a-blazing. But what does he do? He describes their position, and he describes what they have in Jesus Christ. Well, how in the world can Apostle Paul take these people doing all these terrible things and address them as holy and sanctified? This is something that it has taken me a lifetime to really understand. Folks, our identity and our standing is based upon whether or not you know Jesus Christ and not on our actions, what we do or don't do. It's simply this. Imagine there's a giant circle, and and there's really only two positions that you can be in. Either you're in Jesus Christ, or you're outside of Jesus Christ. And when we're in Jesus Christ, we're seen before God as holy, as sanctified, as set apart as God's holy people, even if our actions do not look that way. And so we have to realize how important that is. So though these believers are, are just struggling with these horrendous sins, Paul says, that's not who you are. That's not your identity. you brothers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and he wants to set you apart as holy ones. And those that are going up to the temple to see the prostitutes, stop doing this because you're holy not to become holy it's not that we step out to do unholy things we're still in christ he says you can't unite yourself with christ and a prostitute at the same time you're in christ right now and he's made you holy and those getting drunk at the communion meal remember you have been set apart and justified before god so i want you to live into that status And that status is, you can't be filled with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit at the same time. Live into your status. Everything you think about Jesus, who He is and what He represents, we just kind of imagine Jesus, that He's perfect, right? And and He's holy, and He's good, and He's gracious, and He's loving, He's forgiving, He's merciful, That's how God sees you if you're in Jesus Christ. Paul says, church, that's your status. Start living in that way. That's your new identity in Jesus. Think of Jesus and you are that way to God. Start living in that way. But that's how God sees you in your new identity. So it's important how we understand that we don't grow in holiness. We try to grow into the holiness that's given to us by Jesus Christ. Boy, that, the way that we become sanctified and holy is to realize that's how God sees us now. We're in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's important for us to understand that. Sinners cannot be holy. We just have to put on Jesus Christ. Is that not good news? It's hard for us to grasp that. Paul says, dear people, who are set apart and already loved by God. You are in Christ. He said, I'm going to chew on you in this area, this area, this area, and this area. But before we get started, before we start unraveling what's happening here in this church, you got to be reminded as to who you are and whose you are and what that means and how God sees you. That has to be your starting point. 1 Corinthians 1 to verse 30 says this, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So churches, we get started on this. We're going to be hitting some tough topics over the next three months. Some tough topics. And I don't want you to start wrestling with this and go, I don't know if I'm in Christ or not. Yes, you are. You're in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What our, our challenge is, is to start living that way. To start living into our identity. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He said, your old way of life has been put to death. Why are you trying to breathe life into that corpse and bring it back? No, put it to death once and for all. Live into this new reality. You're a new creation. Live that way. So God sees all Christians as perfect and new creations in Jesus Christ because they have been united with Jesus and covered by his blood. Yeah, but there's a lot of bad things going on in this dysfunctional church. It's not just immorality. It's infighting, quarreling over gifts and theology. How is Paul going to unravel this mess? Well, stay tuned and come back. But 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14, Paul, at the very end of this letter, he says this, Church, just do everything in love. Do everything in love. And what Paul is trying to get across is once we understand our vertical standing with our Heavenly Father and what our Heavenly Father has done for us, and we reach a hand up and say, Father, I want to be united with you through your Son Jesus, we also reach out. And that same love that comes down to us gets extended out to each and everyone around us. What does that look like? Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Church, we've got to get this powerful message in this powerful passage out of our wedding ceremonies and into the life of the church to say as we wrestle with different things, how are we going to love each other? How are we going to wrestle through truth? How are we going to wrestle through different things? We do it through the lens of God's love for us. So our invitation for each one of us as we start this study is, number one, I'm going to ask each of us to invest in this study. And what I mean by that. Well, first, I want each and every week, I want you to read through 1 Corinthians. It'll take you a little little long. I mean, it's a pretty long letter. But you start to get a sense of what Paul is trying to communicate over the course of a long letter. We don't usually study that way. We tend to parse out and, and break up into chunks. Get the full spirit of what Paul is communicating to the church at Corinth and the church here at High Point by once a week reading through all of 1 Corinthians also want you to invest in today to be here for worship, but also for our Bible class. Boy, Ryan Newhouse is a fantastic teacher, isn't he? Can we show Ryan our appreciation for all he does for this church? Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it very much. So if you're unable to come to class, his class will be posted online. So he's going to dig in and provide some information and stuff that, that I won't cover in what I'm doing here uh, during my sermon times. But, man, take advantage of Ryan's study with his Masters of Divinity from Abilene, where he spent a ton of time in this letter. He knows his stuff. So come to Bible class or, or download his Bible class later during the week and take that in. Number two, I want each of us over the course of the next three months, is av- as we encounter some of these difficult texts, to remember our calling. Remember our identity. Remember that we're holy and sanctified because we've united with Jesus Christ. But then start examining our lives saying, is that congruent? Is it in keeping with the holiness that's been imparted upon us? And if not, like the church in Corinth, we're called to change our ways. But mostly, I hope during this season that if you've been wrestling with where you are, if you haven't, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you haven't stepped in the circle, you haven't fused your life with Jesus, I encourage you to do that now. Say, Lord, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm not doing real good apart from Jesus Christ, and I don't know how I am with you and what my standing is. I I can just tell you, Jesus says, there's no other path to the Father except through me. If you have a a, a knowledge that you have a heavenly Father, you're wondering, how do I connect with him? It's simple, through Jesus Christ. We want you to step into that life, step into that holiness, step into that calling that comes when we put our old life to death. We just put it, we we kill it, and we say, we want to live into that new life. Not that we work towards that, but that we live into what Christ has done for us. If you're ready to accept him as your Savior and Lord, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.